Psalm 51, Jason has prayed us in, and as we get started looking at this or continuing our look at Psalm 51, I'm reminded of a story that a a pastor shared about his brother-in-law and how he used to berate his brother-in-law for not wearing a seatbelt. Like, why would you not do that? This is common sense. But to his surprise, one day his brother-in-law was picking him up from the airport, and he gets in the car, and what does he see? His brother-in-law is wearing a seatbelt. So he says to him, what happened? What, what changed? And here's what his brother-in-law said. He said, you know, I was visiting a friend of mine in the hospital the other day who had been in a car accident. And in that accident, he had gone through the windshield. And here I am visiting my friend in the hospital, and I'm looking at him, and he's got somewhere between 200 and 300 stitches in his face. He concluded then, I'd better start wearing my seatbelt. As he tells it, he knew all along that he too could be in a car accident and that he too could go through the windshield. But when he saw his friend in the hospital, here's what he said. He said, when I went to see my friend, I got no new information but the information I had became new. The information got real to my heart and finally sank down and affected the way I live. King David knew that he had crossed the line of God's word when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah murdered. He knew that. And we know that because he tried to conceal it for a year. But when the prophet Nathan confronted him about it, David paints for us a perfect portrait of what true repentance looks like. Here in Psalm 51, and two weeks ago, we said that true repentance involves confession. That is full disclosure on what we've done. It's not vague, it's not kind of beating around the bush, it's not general, it's very specific. God hears how I have grieved you, and to the people that we have hurt in the process of that, here's what I've done. It's very clear, it's very specific, it's very open. And then it also involves contrition, and we said that is penitence. This is when someone is genuinely grieved over grieving God. They're not dismissive or casual about it. No, God, I I grieved you. I grieved your spirit. I displeased you. And God, that's not light with me. That hurts. I mourn that. True repentance is, it involves a a, a genuine desire to change. God, I don't want to keep thinking like this. I don't want to keep speaking like this. I don't want to keep living like this. I really want to get this right before you because, God, I have to please you. Lord, I must please you. You want to have a John 8, 29 heart attitude that Christ modeled for us where he says, I always do those things that please my Father. That's true repentance. 
When someone is truly repentant, whether it be the unbeliever who is getting saved or the believer who has backslidden and grieved God, now there is this desire that says, God, I have to please you. And true repentance is never followed by the same old, same old. It's not business as usual. And so this is what we're seeing as we're unpacking true repentance here in Psalm 51. And and now as we continue, we see what is probably the most obvious sign when someone is truly repentant. And we see it here in verse 10, where David said, or prayed to God, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So here we go. An unclean heart produces a wrong spirit. An unclean heart produces a wrong spirit. Uh, King David's transgressions, iniquity, and sin were the manifestation of a heart that was not clean and a spirit that was not right. Listen very carefully. It wasn't that his heart was ever naturally clean in and of itself. That wasn't the issue. Jesus tells us what is in the heart of man very clearly. And two of the things that he tells us that are in the heart of man are murders and adulteries. David's adultery and murder came from his heart that was already defiled. That's why he did what he did. That's where that came from. That's where that lust and that pride originated. That was already there. The issue was David was not keeping his heart with all diligence. That was the issue, and that is always the issue. As we said two weeks ago, we all have the carnal propensity to write our own Psalm 51, do we not? We have in us the very thing that David had in him to be able to do what he did. You can do that. So can I. Proverbs 4:23: keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. In other words, Whatever you allow to flow out of your heart is where your life is going. That's the issue. Remember in Psalm or 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, when kings go forth to battle, what did David do? Well, he didn't go. He sent Joab and all of his servants with him and Israel to go fight. What did he do? He tarried still at Jerusalem. Listen, physically speaking, none of us can be in two places at the same time, correct? Understand, had David been on the battlefield where he belonged, he never would have found himself on the roof being swallowed whole by immense temptation. Had he been where he was supposed to be, We don't have this chapter. We must understand an unclean heart which produces a wrong spirit is the result of an unkept heart. 
if you don't keep your heart with all diligence, what will flow out of your heart is going to take you places that will for sure land you in Psalm 51. And this is the issue. We have come to the place where not just in society, but even in the church, we are a very unbridled people. Unbridled. We don't like lines. We don't like boundaries. We want to be able to do, say, and think whatever we feel or desire. So whatever my heart is telling me that I should have or whatever my heart is telling me I deserve or whatever my heart is yearning for and demanding, well, how dare me tell me no? How dare me deny myself? How dare me put restraints? See, this is interesting because that type of thinking, listen, it's very contrary to biblical discipleship. Why? Because what did Jesus say? If you're going to come after him as a disciple indeed, one of the things that you must do is deny yourself. What does that mean? That means you got to tell you no. And here's how we can tell when we are not keeping our heart and that our spirit is wrong. Listen. We cannot and we will not endure temptation. When you're not keeping your heart, which means now your spirit's not going to be right, not if, but when temptation knocks, you will answer the door and swing it wide open. That was David on the roof that day. Now, the key to enduring temptation, which we all face, is found in David's supplication in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. O God. It is dependence on God. That's the key. David had learned what he could do in his flesh. Now he's looking to God to help him to be right and do right. Galatians 5.16 is critical to this. Paul said, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I'll tell you, one of my closest and dearest friends in all of life is failure. Because God uses it. God uses failure in my life to teach me and show me, son, this is what happens when you choose not to walk in the Spirit. Anytime a believer does not walk in the Spirit, listen, anytime the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ quenches the Spirit, grieves the Spirit, it's failure every time. Every time. Every time. And God says, this is how and why you landed where you have landed. You grieved my spirit, you quenched my spirit. Verse 11, uh, cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now, here we are, and we have another example of why it is so critical that we all learn how to rightly divide the word of truth. 
Because if you are in the camp that says a believer can somehow lose their salvation without a doubt, this is one of your proof texts, is it not? But biblically speaking, there are some glaring issues with that position doctrinally. For one, the Holy Spirit of God did not indwell believers in the Old Testament. That did not happen until Acts chapter 2 when the church was born. Next, the Davidic covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that covenant is an eternal covenant. That's crystal clear from 2 Samuel 7, 16. So how could God make an eternal covenant with David if David can somehow lose his salvation? That's not possible. Next, after the child that was born to David and Bathsheba's adulterous moment, when that child died, notice what David said. In 2 Samuel 12, 23, David said, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Do you think David was really expecting to meet that child in hell? No way. Notice what he said in verse 12. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Would you agree that there is a major difference between restore unto me thy salvation and restore unto me the joy of thy salvation? Those are very different. Once again, this is why we must study our Bible and compare Scripture with Scripture and rightly divide, because when you don't, you will arrive at erroneous and heretical doctrinal conclusions every time. And if that's not enough, look at verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. Does that sound like a man who believed he was losing his salvation? No way. Now, let me just tell you, the AC is not on. <laughs> so between no AC and lights, I'm sweating just a little bit. Please don't feel bad for me. If you do, I'm fine. Trust me. I just, I'm going to have to wipe from time to time, but that's okay. Yeah, that's all right. We're good, right? So Lori will still hug me when I'm done. I hope so anyway. For David, this, is, this, was, about, uh, this was about God's mercy. This was about pleading for God's mercy over the blood of Uriah that had been shed because of him. He knew he was guilty. He knew what he deserved according to the law. Now, while the Holy Spirit of God did not indwell believers in the Old Testament, he would come upon them mightily and use them beyond their human capacities. An example of this is Samson in the book of Judges. You see the Holy Spirit of God come on Samson, and Samson was able to do things that were beyond his natural capabilities. That's very clear. Okay, But David feared, listen, David feared what all of us should fear. And, I, and I'm saddened that some of us don't. He feared what all of us should fear, which is David feared the absence of the power of God on his life and his ministry. That's what he feared. 
David feared walking in life. David feared functioning in ministry without the power of God unleashed through the Holy Spirit of God. And sadly, some of us have gotten to the point where we've gotten so comfortable walking and doing life in the power of the deadness of our flesh. Where we're not desperate to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It doesn't bother us that we're not walking in the Spirit of God. We're doing our very best. David said, no way. And this is a desire of someone who is genuinely contrite. Their confidence is no longer in them. God, I've seen what that produces. I've seen what happens when I take the will. I've seen how things work out when I'm not spirit-filled. They now want to walk in the spirit and not grieve and quench the spirit of God. Verse 13. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. It's interesting, because when people are genuinely contrite, they have a keen awareness of the impact that their carnality and their sin has on unbelievers. The impact it has on the gospel itself. Listen very carefully. What often hinders the repentance of the sinner is the unrepentance of the believer. That is often what hinders the repentance of the sinner. It's that the believer hasn't repented. (laughs) They're not right with God. Personal, listen, personal repentance is often the missing ingredient in our evangelism. Is that we are trying to witness to people, we're trying to evangelize to people while we have unrepentant sin in our lives. We're not right with God. God is grieved as much with us as he is with the lostness of the unbeliever. It grieves God that the unbeliever has not been saved. God so loved the world, God wants them to be redeemed. God takes no pleasure in any unbeliever that dies and enters a Christless eternity. God says, I don't want that. God is not willing that any should perish. But here you have the unbeliever that it grieves God that they're not saved, but God says, I'm also as grieved over my child who won't repent. And sometimes the unrepentant believer can't figure out why they have no fruit. Why isn't God using me? Life fellowship... We can talk about winning people to Christ every week. We can hear testimonies like we heard from Jesu. We can even pray about it on Friday mornings at 6.30. And we can have meetings and strategize and talk about the best way to go about that. But be not mistaken, if we're not dealing with sin in our lives as a fellowship, all we're doing is daydreaming when it comes to fruit. That's all we're doing. We're just talking. 
I can only imagine how the gospel would have free course with the people that we evangelize to if every person who called Life Fellowship home took Psalm 51 very seriously. What would happen? What would happen? It's interesting, I, I, and I, I, I see this, and I just, more than anything, I want to warn you. I want to warn all of you, because I know our demographic. I know our age and stage of life. And the older we get, we can get to the place where we think that we are so adult and so mature that we're going to even tell God how he's going to view our sin. Yeah, I know what the Bible says about this, but let me tell you, let me show you why this is going to stay in my life. See, God, I know better than you regarding this situation. Yeah, I understand it's sin, it's wrong, but see, I've got this extenuating circumstance or this is my situation or whatever it might be, and because I'm 45, because I'm 40, because I'm 50, because I'm 60, because of, so I get to determine, I get to decide. So even though, God, in Colossians, you tell us to mortify these things, let me tell you why I'm going to manage it. And you're going to be okay with that, God. Um, some of you are inviting God to a fight you really don't want. Some of you are daring him to respond to that. And with everything in me, I'm telling you, you do not want that. And I don't either. Here's what I've seen in my life a time or two. The power of God is often witnessed and experienced after true repentance. The power of God is often witnessed and experienced after true repentance. You see this in the Old Testament with Israel. You'll see them truly repent and get right with God. And what follows that? You see God move. You see God act. It's unbelievable. Some of you are frustrated, very bitter, angry discontent, sour, negative, cantankerous, beyond measure. You think the problem is your spouse. You think the problem are your circumstances in life. Far from it. No, the problem is your unrepentance. That's the problem. It's your unrepentance. It's your stubbornness. It's your determination to harden your heart. And no doubt about it, 
That's why you're bitter, miserable, angry, cantankerous, sour, negative, very unpleasant, very unhappy to be around. Once you come to God like David does here in Psalm 51, you will be amazed at how different you feel instantly. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. We've addressed David's guilt. But what he says following that is something that I've heard and I've seen in believers during seasons of true repentance, and that is a desire to sing, a desire to praise the Lord. And my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. David had lost the joy of God's salvation. And when that is lost, guess what you cannot and will not do? You will not sing, and you will not praise. No, it takes joy to do that. Remember, the Psalms were essentially Israel's hymnal in the Old Testament. David was the sweet psalmist. But during those 9 to 12 months of unrepentance, he wasn't singing. And he wasn't praising God. He was miserable. Uh, Psalm 32 could be viewed as a companion to Psalm 51. You ought to take a look at that and you'll see just how miserable he was. Listen, an undeniable proof of true repentance is a desire to sing to and praise God again. I want to sing and I want to praise him again. While we're here, I want to ask you a rhetorical question. Are Sunday mornings and Tuesday nights, are those the only times that you sing to and praise God? If the answer is yes, with great confidence, I can say, your heart is not clean and your spirit is not right. If the only time you sing to God and praise him are on Sunday mornings corporately and Tuesday nights, if that's it, something's not right. It can't be. We're talking about the Psalms, and we have Psalms that tell us your praise is going to be in my mouth all the day long, not just Sundays and Tuesdays. I will sing. All, I mean, you, you can't miss it. Think on that. Verse 16, for thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not 
despise. At the dedication of Solomon's temple, 22,000 oxen and 122,000 sheep were offered in the sacrifice of the peace offerings to God. Be not mistaken, if David could have done that here to get this right with God, he would have in a second and would have even tripled it if that's what it took to get this right with God regarding what he had done with Bathsheba and Uriah. But he knew that's not what God desired. What did God desire? God desired brokenness and contrition, not ceremony, not a show, not some fake expression of repentance. God wanted true repentance. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. David's spirit was wrong when he crossed the line of God's law with Bathsheba and Uriah. His spirit was not broken. It was covetous. And that was produced by a proud heart David was the king, and because he was the king, he was entitled to have whoever he wanted, and he was entitled to do whatever he wanted to do. This is what I'm saying. This can happen to us as we get older. Because of our age and our wisdom and what we've accomplished and what we've acquired and our status or our position, that means now that I get rights and privileges that the rest of the body of Christ don't get. So I get to be excused. This is how and why pastors will burn churches to the ground. Where you pull the curtains back and God shows you exactly how they've been living. And you see the line of women they've crossed the line with. And you see the absence of hundreds and thousands of dollars that are also unaccounted for. See, over time, I became a very big deal. I became a big shot. And so I'm not like the rest of you. I get to enjoy and experience. Oh, boy. Oh, man. God. <laughs> no way. No way. That's pride. But now that spirit is broken here in Psalm 51. It's not covetous. And his heart is contrite. It's not proud. Listen, please, I, <laughs> I implore you. I get it. None of this stuff is brilliant. I understand. It's very simple. But I would, I would really, as Paul would say, I beseech you, brethren. Would you, would you please think on this point? Often it is our attitude toward our sin that offends God as much as our sin. Often it's our attitude toward our sin that offends God as much as our sin. The fact that we can blow off God's word, listen, and be so cavalier about it, So what? Who's perfect? I know you don't like it, God. Big deal. Deal with it. 
when we were in those early and arduous years of child training with our children, what determined if we disciplined and how we disciplined? Guess what? Guess what? You know it. Is their hard attitude. What's their hard attitude? Man, if they are disobeying and they're proud and loud and rebellious about it, versus mom and dad, I'm sorry, I, I didn't do what was right. Those generate two different responses, don't they? You think God's any different? I can tell you from a pastoral leadership perspective, leaders in this class and in this church can tell you that God gives us a glimpse of this with adults. We'll have people that will be here and then they will disappear for weeks, months, and they'll go out of here and listen. They will literally go out of here and live like hell. I mean boldly cross lines of God's word and grieve the spirit of God. And then they'll just show up again. Three weeks later, four weeks later, three months later, four months later. They'll just show up and they'll walk in and man, they'll, they'll hug the body, they'll smile, they'll worship, they'll sing. They'll even give tithes and offerings. They'll even go to their ministry leader and talk about getting back into ministry. Listen, no confession, no contrition. And their countenance says, don't say anything to me about where I've been and what I've been doing. It's none of your business. You think God is not offended at that? The church that he purchased with his own blood, and you're going to walk in here and be that bold and that audacious in your carnality, and God's just going to be okay with it. And how dare you, Kenny, ask me where I've been? How dare you ask me what I've been doing? Who do you think you are? No, I want to treat this church any way I want to treat it, when I want to treat it, and nobody gets to ask me about it. Wow. So let me ask you a question, because I want to expose the hypocrisy in that. Let me ask you a question. So, adult, if you're married and your spouse decides that they're going to disappear for three months, for three weeks, not contact you, and then just show back up, walk through the door, hey, honey, I'm home. Are you okay with that? No. No. You're not okay with that. Got a little dialed up there. Verse 18, wrapping it up. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased. That's the goal. 
with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. What got David into this very situation was being preoccupied and focused on what pleased him, not God. But because he is repentant, genuinely his focus has changed in verse 13, he was mindful of transgressors and sinners. And now here in verse 18, he's mindful of Zion and Jerusalem. David's sin had not only positioned God to move against him, it had positioned God to move against the nation of Israel. See, this is what we must always understand, folks. We must do the math on the ripple effect of our unrepentance. If you are a spouse and you are unrepentant before God, you are kidding yourself at best if you think that's not touching your spouse and your children. It's not just between you, God, and the devil in your flesh. No, they're paying for it too. <laughs> that's how this works. Now, notice how David closed this psalm, and I'm coming down the home stretch here. Verse 19, then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. This phrase, sacrifice or sacrifices of righteousness, it only appears three times in your Old Testament or in the Bible altogether. And from what we see here in Psalm 51, these are sacrifices, listen, that are offered to God from a clean heart and a right spirit. That's what they are. Obviously, the sacrifices and offerings of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, John chapter 1. And until his death, burial, resurrection, though, it was it wasn't that God wanted David and Israel to stop making sacrifices and offerings. That wasn't it at all. It was that he wanted those from his people, listen, who were in a right relationship with him. God says, I don't want the ceremony without the heart. Without a clean heart and a right spirit. See, the issue was, no, God, I just want to give you the ceremony. That's why I got a little dialed up. This is what happens when the person who just goes out and lives like hell and then comes back, they want the ceremony. But the heart and the spirit aren't right. And this drives us to our concluding point. Listen or a few concluding points. A soft heart and humble spirit are essential to staying in a right relationship with God. If you're gonna be in a right relationship with God, you must have a soft heart and a humble spirit. Cannot happen otherwise. And I'm gonna close with this. And I guess if you don't get anything out of what we're saying today, I, uh, 
I just trust that you'll get this. If we are not soft-hearted and genuinely humble, the best we can hope for is a very frustrated Christian life. That's as good as it can and will get. If you're not soft-hearted and genuinely humble, the best Christian life that you could possibly live before God as a believer is one that is very, very frustrating. Lord, whatever it is that the Holy Spirit of God has whispered to us during this time, myself included, I beg God that we would not be dismissive of it. Whatever we need to confess to you, whatever we need to get right with you, right now, not later, is the time to respond. And that would be acceptable to you. In Jesus' name, amen.